From Church on Morgan, a United Methodist congregation whose desire is to be a reminder of the beauty of God and each other. This podcast is a collection of Sunday teachings inspired by the Revised Common Lectionary and recorded weekly in Raleigh, North Carolina. And now a moment of silence before this episode begins. This morning is the fourth Sunday in the season of Easter, and uh, it's often referred to as Good Shepherd Sunday. Uh, if you were to go look at the lectionary passages for today, uh, all of them have this strong shepherd theme. We started with Psalm 23, uh, maybe one of the most well-known psalms, the Lord is my shepherd. Today we're going to look at um, a place where Peter uh, lifts up this same image of Jesus being a shepherd. And I, I love the phrase he uses. It's here at the very end. He says that, that um, the Christ has become the guardian and the shepherd of our souls. Uh, and so with that, would you hear now this uh, reading from Second Peter, or 1 Peter, chapter 2, 19 to 25. That's what Peter writes. He says, now... It is commendable if because of one's understanding of God, someone should endure pain through suffering unjustly. But what praise comes from enduring patiently when you've sinned and are beaten for it? But if you endure steadfastly when you've done good and suffer for it, this is commendable before God. In fact, you were called to this kind of endurance. Because Christ suffered on your behalf. He left you an example so that you might follow in his footsteps. He committed no sin, nor did he ever speak in ways meant to deceive. When he was insulted, he did not reply with insults. And when he suffered, he did not threaten revenge. Instead, he trusted himself to the one who judges justly. And he carried in his own body on the cross the sins we committed. He did this so that we might live in righteousness, having nothing to do with sin. By his wounds, you were healed. And though you were like straying sheep, you have now returned to the shepherd and the guardian of your lives. Friends, this is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. So, uh, I don't know how familiar you are with 1 Peter, but it's, uh, it's actually a really beautiful letter. Um, Peter wrote to, um, at the very beginning, if, if you look at 1 Peter chapter 1, it says, uh, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's chosen strangers in the world of the diaspora who live in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and another place I can't pronounce. And he, uh, he writes this letter with the intent that it would be shared that it would be passed around to a group of Christians that find themselves in Asia Minor, or what we would consider today modern-day Turkey. And they, what we know from the letter is that they were Gentile Christians. They were new to faith. Uh, they didn't even grow up Jewish. They had sort of found themselves inside of this story. And uh, they're living in this occupied state of part of the Roman Empire. And because of their faith, 
because of the commitments that they've made to Jesus and living in this way, they're experiencing a lot of persecution and suffering. And that runs the gamut from like small insults and harassment from the dominant culture that they find themselves in to physical abuse. And, uh, and so Peter writes this account to them to say, as a Christian, as somebody who has committed their life to walking in the way of Jesus and has experienced the liberation that only Christ can bring, I want to write to you to say, first of all, I see that you're suffering and that you're suffering unjustly, that what's happening to you is not fair and it's not right. It's not okay. And I hear your concerns and questions about how it is you should respond in such a situation. And so I'm going to lay out for you how it is that you might be faithful even in this horrible circumstance. Because of kind of the situation and the beauty of this letter and the way that it got so widely passed around, I read this week that it was actually one of the first letters that new Christians would be given uh, when you sort of convert to the faith or baptize. This was kind of the intro to Christianity as they would hand people First Peter. It's six short chapters. I actually commend it to you today to go read it in its entirety. I did that a couple times this week and just found it really moving. Um, but Peter's writing to these group of people suffering unjustly, being treated unpoorly, and he wants to speak into that moment and say, this moment actually matters, and how you handle it actually matters. And I, I want to tell you a little bit about what this might look like, right? And so this week, as I've been sort of sitting with this text, I've been wondering about, about my life, about your life, about all the ways that you might have suffered unjustly even this week, uh, the many places where you might have been treated unfairly, everything from a child who snaps back at you and clearly doesn't understand the sacrifice that you're making for them to a, a partner or a spouse who had something horrible happen at work and decided to give it to you when they got home, to work itself, an employer, or somebody who didn't do what they were supposed to and they pushed it on you and let you take the blame for it, or in any other place in your life where you have been treated unfairly, where you find yourself suffering unjustly. I actually also love that Peter says here, now, if you're suffering because you're a knucklehead and you brought it on yourself, that's not what I'm talking about. You, you got what was coming for you. But for those of us in a moment, in a season where something is, that is unjust, Peter has something that he wants to say to us. Before Peter, we hear what Peter has to say, I was thinking about what do I say? What do I say to people who show up in that situation, in that, um, in that place? And I say to them the kinds of things that you probably say to someone who shows up at your doorstep wondering, like, are you kidding me? Like, all I've tried to do is be for this person or to help, and yet this is what's happening to me, right? And as we both sit there and wrestle trying to make meaning out of it, we often will find ourselves on one of these phrases. It's not, I'm sure, helpful, but it feels like a and it's not an excuse, as we often say, but it's a bit of an explanation. We'll say things like, I'm so sorry that this happened to you, but I think we both know that, like, hurt people hurt people, right? That wounded people wound people. That broken people break people. It's not okay, but this is just the world we live in, right? Right? 
that this is how we make sense out of what's happening in the world around us as we all swim in this kind of violent world. And if we're not careful, what Peter says is living in a world that's violent like that, where hurt people hurt people, is that inevitably this violent world will make you violent. That it turns out that living this life among each other uh, can do a real number on your soul. So I'm uh, Thursday, I'm sitting at an Irish coffee shop, and, uh, and a lovely individual, I just want to emphasize that, and human being made in the image of God, um, <laughs> comes in and sits down right next to me, and as I'm working on this letter about people suffering unjustly and God's invitation of how we might respond in a moment of that, uh, this gentleman sits down and he just waits patiently at his table in a real, like, serial killer kind of way. And eventually, the barista brings him over his coffee. And I'm going to do my best to, like, give you a picture of what happens next. So he's sitting there 12 to 18 inches from my face. And when the coffee comes, he grabs it like this. And he brings it up to his nose closes his eyes and takes like a deep inhale. And I'm trying not to stare, but I'm like, what in the... <laughs> and then, hold on, let me see if I can do this for y'all. I don't have the experience that he clearly has, but he... puts the coffee down, and I am like, sweet Jesus. <clears throat> and the top 12 ideas I have on how to respond all involve physical violence. <laughs> like, I literally can't come up with anything that doesn't. And I wouldn't share that story with you if I didn't have a sense that you too have a similar reaction and response to just life in this world with each other. There's something about living with each other and hurt people hurting each other that does a number on our souls, that makes us violent people in this violent world. Peter says that when you find yourself in a situation where you're unjustly suffering, where you've done nothing wrong, and, and not like a guy sipping his coffee way too enthusiastically, but, but like a dear friend of mine right now who you know, pastors a church and, um, and is really taking it on the chin and probably won't survive this, and he's poured out his life for these people. And... Um, has done nothing wrong, but a lot of hurt, wounded people are putting their hurt and wounds in his direction rather than deal with it on their own. And as our friends try to circle around him and make sense out of it, all of our best ideas are like, fly me in and I will tell those people a few things, right? I'm talking about people who are suffering unjustly right now, did nothing wrong, but live on the other side of some broken people. And Peter says those moments in our life just might be some of the most important, 
critical moments, not only for your own soul, but for the soul of the world, for all of humanity, that that moment matters deeply. He says that in moments like that, that we need, we need a shepherd, we need a guardian of our souls. In essence, he's saying, you can't pull this one off alone. You need a guide. This is like high degree of difficulty stuff. Your own instincts aren't going to help you with this one. You're going to need somebody else who's going to step in and shepherd you through this situation. Like so many of us have shepherds in other areas of our life, right? Like if you're if you're lucky, you had some sort of financial shepherd step into your life in your 20s or 30s, and you began making some good financial uh, decisions such that when you're old by God's grace, you won't be impoverished. Or you have a shepherd in your life for your health who uh, shows up along the way and offers advice so that your body, by God's grace, will still be functioning deep into life, and you'll be able to enjoy uh, so much that this life has to offer. We recognize that there are moments where things are so important, we need a shepherd, we need a guide. We can't just follow our own instincts and go, I don't see anything wrong with a Big Mac every time I eat, right? But someone else has to shepherd us through that and go, there will be something wrong, like, if you do that, right? Or credit cards are awesome. It's just like, you just can buy anything you want and that's it, I guess, right? Like, no, that's not how it works. We need a shepherd. And in this moment, you need a shepherd for your soul. That when you find yourself in a position where you're suffering unjustly, if you don't have a guide, things can get bad really, really quick. So here's, before I I give you what I'm going to say next, I just, as the kids these days, say. I think they still say this, Maggie. Um, Don't at me, okay? I didn't come to your house and wake you up this morning and tell you to come to church. and You made that decision for yourself. I didn't pick, this text is on the lectionary on this Sunday every three years, right? I didn't write it. Peter wrote it. Uh, I, I didn't live Jesus' life the way that he chose to live it. You showed up to hear a distinctly Christian story, and I'm going to do my best to share it with you. And I'm asking you to hear the source, and it's not me, okay? I'm not looking for an argument today. And typically our shepherds, as we know, the kinds of things they offer us often feel offensive before they feel good. Peter says this, he says, um, don't return evil for evil. When someone swings at you, you don't swing back. Someone lashes out at you, you don't lash back. When someone's uh, evil in your direction, you're not evil back. I'm watching this new show on Netflix called The Diplomat. Anybody watching this? Oh, I know. I'm, a, I'm like, a, what do they call it? I'm like way out there on the edge. I'm the early adopter. Um, so if you liked uh, West Wing, it's got some of those vibes going on for sure. But there's this occasion where uh, a British uh, naval ship uh, takes a hit and 41 um, sailors die. And so the prime minister of the UK has gathered all of his advisors together and they're trying to plan a response. And all of his advisors offer him for a day and a half like diplomatic things, little slaps on the wrist and sanctions and stuff like that. And in just like profound frustration, he looks at the room and he goes, give me something to bomb now. That this is how we respond. 
I, I take, if I'm taking on water because of some horrific thing that you've done, all I want to know is where am I bombing now? Give me something to swing at now. Give me someone to cancel now. Give me someone to get fired now, right? And Peter says, don't return evil for evil. By the way, this is the same Peter who, when they come to arrest Jesus, pulls out his sword and cuts a dude's ear off. So I'm like, give me a break, right? Um, <laughs> but the resurrection has happened since that occasion. You've seen a couple things. He knows a few things that we now know too. And I think if we're being honest, we, we all know in some deep theoretical way out there space that what is commonly referred to as the myth of redemptive violence is just that. It's a myth. That if somebody swings at you and you swing back, you didn't really fix anything. If someone bombs you and you bomb them back, you didn't actually heal or repair anything. We know this doesn't ever lead to anything good. It's why when that moment happens in The Diplomat, you're kind of siding with all of his advisors going, I wouldn't bomb Russia. That doesn't feel like where we want to go, right? Because then that goes to more and to more and to more and to more. And we know somewhere deep in our souls that this just isn't the solution. And yet, when it shows up on my doorstep, give me someone to bomb right now, right? Every once in a while, we'll bump into a story. I'll bump into a story that feels enlightening in, in a sort of way that I cannot walk away from. And a few months ago, uh, I came across this story that uh, I can't stop thinking about. But it's in, uh, there's this woman named Astrid Lindgren, and she won a, uh, a literature prize for peace in 1978. She won this like peace prize for literature. And in her speech, which I came across an excerpt from, um, of receiving her award, she tells this story. So she's receiving this award, she's standing in front of this audience, and she's been awarded for this book that she's written about peace, and she's got her few moments, and she shares this story. And she says, um, early on in my life, I became friends with the wife of a pastor, and we were talking one day, and this pastor's wife said to me, you know, my whole life I've grown up in the faith, in the church, and the rest, and I've always just felt kind of uncomfortable around spanking, just never sit well with me. And then uh, one day when my firstborn son was about four or five years old, he, um, he did something violent that, that sort of warranted a spanking. It felt like this is the moment, I think, that when you're supposed to do this. And so remember, this is the 1970s. So she says to her son, she says, I want you to go out back and get a switch and bring it in. Some of you are like, oh, I know what that's about, right? We see you, you 99s. We're glad you're in the house. Uh, for those of you who don't know, a switch is this uh, idea where you would go into the backyard, you pull off a branch off a tree, you'd bring it back in, and that's what you would then be spanked with, right? And so she says to her four or five-year-old son, you know what you did was wrong, and I want you to go get a switch off that tree, and I want you to bring it back in here, and you're going to be spanked. And so her son is gone for far too long. And when he comes back in, he's crying, and he doesn't have a switch. And so she says to him, why were you gone so long? Why are you crying, and where is the switch? And he says to her, Mom, I'm so sorry. I couldn't find a switch, but I got this rock, and you can throw it at me if you want to. And she says in that moment she starts to realize that in his four-year-old mind, all that he knows is that my mom wants to hurt me. 
And it probably doesn't make a difference if it's with a stick or with a rock. And so she scoops up her son and they sit at the kitchen table and they both just weep together. And she takes that rock and she puts it up on a shelf in the kitchen and she says, I left it there for the rest of his childhood. It's a reminder to me that uh, violence would never be the way. That violence would never be the way. As Easter people, on the other side of the resurrection, one of the great epiphanies that we've been given is that there is no violence in God. There is no violence in God. Jesus takes on insults, as Peter says, and he doesn't give insults back. Jesus takes on violence and he doesn't threaten revenge. He's murdered unjustly, and then in the craziest turn of events of all time, he comes back to life and he doesn't go on a revenge tour, right? I mean, this is the plot of every great action movie we know. Jesus shows back up and is like, hey guys, I'm back. And we're like, sign me up. I'm going to the theater for this one, right? I can't wait to see what happens next. What happens next is he makes some fish tacos on the beach, And he passes out hugs like crazy. There's no violence in God. And I I just want to be really careful here. We've kind of come up to this line a couple times as a church. Um, But I think some of the ways that many of us were told the story of God was shaped more by this world than it was by this story. So much so that what we hear and maybe what you heard and always had a sense like that woman uh, who's the pastor's wife, it's like something about this doesn't feel quite right. Like Some of the way you've heard the story is that humanity did some violent, ugly things. And in order to make it right, God did some violent, ugly things to his son. Right? And now it were square. The myth of redemptive violence. We beat on some folks, so if somebody else gets beat on, it's all good. This is not the good news. That's why it never really sounded like good news. The good news is that in the kind of framing of one of my favorite theologians these days, uh, James Allison, this Catholic theologian, is the good news is this, that uh, God took on flesh, came into our midst, and received the other side of the stick. He stepped into our hurt people, hurt people world, and he took on all the hurt, but he never gave it back. And when we were at our very worst, When humanity took pure goodness, put it up on a cross, brutally murdered, tortured, unjustly an innocent man, that God looked at us lovingly even as we did so. That for us as humanity, that was the moment where like the rock got put up on the shelf. It's where we as the people of God were meant to have the giant epiphany that like never violence. This will never make it well. This isn't ever going to be the solution for us. We are to consider, just imagine, put yourself in that position, the worst you've ever been on your worst day, the ugliest, most shameful behavior that you've ever participated in. Imagine the other person that you're leashing that out on, looking at you lovingly, even liking you, befriending you. Like, what would that do in you? 
that sort of gift of profound forgiveness. The good news of the gospel is what that moment has done for us and for humanity and for all of human history is it's been the one thing that could pry our fingers off the grip of retribution. It's the one thing that could wean us off of our addiction to violence and seeing it as the solution anytime we're offended to offend someone else. Peter says this, he says, the reason why this is one of the most critical moments in your life is first, it's a deep gift to you because I don't wish it on you. And I, at the end of the letter, he says, I'm charging all of your friends and your pastors to care for you when you're walking through this because this is not going to be a good time. But I will tell you this, don't lose the opportunity. One, you will be disabused of any notion of where your hope really lies. And that's a gift to know ultimately that your hope isn't in your government that it's not in your boss doing it right all the time, that it's not in your partner always being a perfect partner, your children always treating you the way that they should. Your hope will not come from there. There is only one just judge in this life, and your suffering will be a reminder of that. And if it drives you back into that hope, thanks be to God. But this is also a huge opportunity for you as a follower of Jesus to be invited to the inside of the story and create and make a whole new world. That when you don't retaliate insult for insult, you're not just offering passivity. I I saw some pretty strong critiques around this sort of mentality this week online from folks who would say that um, there's something violent happening in the world And then some person like myself, some straight white male in a position of power is going to say, guys, the answer is just chill, like peace, ohm it out, you know? Um, And I want to be clear, I, I get that, and that's BS too, but that's not what this is. This isn't sort of passivity in the face of violence, this is more than that. Quote this famous line from the musical Rent, the opposite of war is not peace, it's creation. What's happening here is you're being given an opportunity to create a new world. That when you suffer unjustly, you have the holy privilege to stand on the other side of someone who's lashing out of their hurt and wound and to offer them the opportunity to be remade, reborn. And so Peter says, instead of returning insult for insult, you return generous love and grace. It's so offensive that I've like spent all week debating whether to even read this out loud, right? And then when I started thinking through like, who's lived this in our life? Like it doesn't take long. Your mind probably goes where mine does. Not but a second till you realize like, Martin Luther King Jr. is maybe the most profound witness of this in the last hundred years. A man whose life was so deeply shaped by his faith that he he gave his life for this direction. Someone that we stop every year and celebrate his life and legacy, forgetting kind of the controversy of his approach. Uh, This was a person who was not loved by white folks during his time and also not always celebrated by his own people during this time, right? Who would say, Bro, you can keep your little, like, nonviolent whatever. We're going to bomb the heck out of them too, right? One point in his life, he said, it, on a rare occasion, someone will come across an idea or a belief that is so profound to them that the conviction in them is so strong that they will see it till the very end. And he said, for me, 
that is nonviolent resistance. This idea has been so powerful in my life that I will die for it, and he did. And so this morning, um, in kind of your act of your own personal courage, I would love for you to entertain just bringing to mind for a second some place in your life where you currently feel or maybe still harbor resentment from a time where you felt like you were being treated unfairly, unjustly suffering. And I want to invite you to think through these six principles that Martin Luther King laid out, how it might shape your own life and the life of others if you were to respond in the sort of ways that he did because of his convictions of who Christ was. And some of you are like, I'm not going on that ride with you, and I get it. (laughs) But here's what he had to say. Um, First principle is that you would resist violence without resorting to violence. You would resist offense without resorting to offense. That the measure that was poured out in your direction, you wouldn't put it back the same way it came. Second, and if this one doesn't make your stomach turn, that you would seek to win friendship and understanding of your opponent, which you can't do if you're humiliating them. Third, that you would oppose evil itself, but not the people committing evil acts. Fourth, that you'd be willing to suffer without retaliation as even suffering can be redemptive. And uh, fifth, that nonviolent, your nonviolent resistance, that it would avoid external and internal violence. When he talks about this, he says, that means that when you are fired upon, not only do you not fire back upon externally, but you also don't hate internally, right? And ultimately, none of this is possible if you don't have a deep faith in the future. That there is a just judge one day who will sort it out. And without that, none of this works. Church on Morgan, we are called to be a resurrection people. And on the other side of resurrection, one of the great insights about our own condition and the work of God in this world is that There is no violence in God. And because of that, we've been given our own souls back. And we've been invited to do the same for each other. May we do so in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you for joining today. If this episode has been meaningful to you, would you take a moment to share it with a friend? To support this ministry or learn more about our community, visit us at churchonmorgan.org.